Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Rice's Routine. This week, chatting to Philippa East. Philippa is a clinical psychologist as well as a writer and she uses inspiration from work to get down thrillers. Now we talk about the doubt demon and how she deals with it, also about her new novel Safe and Sound and we chat about character names and why they can mean quite a lot. In the very original version she was called Sophie Starling which is sort of quite an intriguing name but Yeah, I think as I went on with the novel, I think, not to give any spoilers, but as part of the twist of the novel, there's a sense of kind of that people didn't realise that they knew her. So if you you heard a news story about someone called Sarah Jones, where something pretty awful seemed to have happened, and you know someone called Sarah Jones that you think that would never happen to, you're going to assume, well... Sarah Jones is a really common name. What, you know, why would I assume it's mine? There is more on the way with Philippa East in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, thank you. Welcome along to the show. It's Writer's Routine where we take a look inside the daily lives of some of the best authors around. My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you for being there. Thank you for finding, downloading, streaming us. You can always get in touch with the show, by the way. Easiest is on the contact form at writersroutine.com. So if you've learned a writing tip elsewhere that you'd like to share, by all means, if you've got any questions or comments, that's where you need to head. Now, this week, we are with Philippa East. Philippa's debut, Little White Lies, was nominated for a CWA New Blood Dagger Award back in 2020 uh, in the running for one of the highest prizes in crime fiction. And she's back with a brand new novel. Now, Philippa works as a clinical psychologist. She uses inspiration from her work to write thrillers and to write crime novels. The new one is Safe and Sound. And it's got perhaps the best blurb to any book I've ever been sent. Really hooked me in. Let me share it with you. Uh, In a small London bedsit. A radio is playing, a small dining table is set for three, and curled up on the sofa is a body. Jen is the one who discovers the woman, along with bailiffs. All indications suggest that the tenants, Sarah Jones, was pretty, charismatic and full of life. 
So how is it possible that her body was lain undiscovered for 10 whole months? Dun, dun, dun. Really made me want to read this one. We talk about how Philippa was inspired by a documentary that she saw and then took parts of that but made the novel her own. Also, you can hear about the editing process and when she knows that things are finally done. And Philippa is, is very into learning about the craft of writing. As she listens to this show and she vociferously reads writing books. And I'm wondering how consciously does she make the improvements that she's learned about? Or do they almost happen by osmosis? Just by surrounding yourself with different tips, you end up getting better. I've always been curious of that doing this show. So there's all that on the way. And we jump into it and start off with Philippa, as we always do with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Yeah, so I'm I'm in my writing room just now and uh, my desk actually faces the wall, but I've got a nice window on my left that looks out onto the garden. And on the wall in front of me, I've got a few things stuck up to inspire me, you know, things from events I've done and um, stuff like that. Um, I have a pile of how-to writing books on my desk that keep falling over onto the floor because I really need to get some bookshelves. <laughs> but at the moment, they're kind of just stuck between two bookends on the desk and they always end up tipping over at some point every few weeks. Um, and behind me, I have a little sofa that I bought for myself because, as I'm sure you know, Dan, sometimes writing just involves lying down. <laughs> and I also... Today, like on most days, have my little cat, Mimi, as a companion. She's currently sitting on the windowsill, actually watching the neighbour's cat who is on the neighbour's wall, and they have a not a good relationship. So I think they're having a little bit of a standoff at the minute. I'm interested in the... The, the pile of writing books that you have. And I know that you listen to the show. So you're, you're someone that's interested in the craft of writing and how you can get better at it, I, I would imagine. What have you, like, what are you learning along the way? What, what, have you, what have you picked up from reading all different forms of writing books about how you do it? Oh my God, yeah, I'm a total nerd when it comes to the craft. I think I have quite a scientific brain. So I, I, really like understanding the, the sort of theory and technicalities behind stuff and I think it's always a balancing act isn't it like you can't you can't focus so much on that stuff that it stifles you and stops you from just having fun and being creative and just messing around with ideas but I do think um, when you know some of the technique stuff I think it just helps you focus what you're doing and know how to fix things better so I mean, I guess when I was first starting out in writing, I would be learning what I suppose we might think of as the, you know, writers 101, things like point of view is a thing. You know, the very first thing that I ever started writing, I didn't know what point of view was. And I remember writing this opening scene and I was like, there's definitely something wrong with it, but I don't know what. And now obviously I can go back and be like, well, it's because every third line you're going into a different character's head and head hopping um so I think learning the basics like that and just the sort of revelation that there are techniques that you can learn that mean that your writing isn't just all over the place and then later on I really got into um uh a writing well it's a sort of whole 
world now in a sense, but it, a series of writing craft resources which are run by the story grid. And there's a, there's a book, there's a series of podcasts, and there's all sorts of um, articles and stuff online as well from, from this group. And I'm actually doing a series of um, uh, tutorials on Twitter at the moment, just for my own entertainment as much as anything, really drawing on a lot of stuff that I've learned from StoryGrid, which primarily are, a, for me, was about story structure. So there's lots and lots of different models to understand story structure, right from you know, save the cat and hero's journey and all of this kind of stuff. And Story Grid has presented it in a way that just makes most sense to me. And also they talk a lot about different story genres, which I found incredibly helpful in figuring out what kind of story am I actually writing and what kind of elements does it need to have in it to really make it work as a story. And that's really helped me get out of a lot of story muddles along the way with my novels. Um, um, what about how, how conscious is it, I guess? It, you're saying that when you're reading these books and you're learning little tips and little tricks, which helps you out, it means you're not flitting between points of views, every other line, that kind of stuff. Uh, are, are you sat there and, and you're like remembering these things that you've learned? Or is it more and, and you're then consciously doing that? Or is it kind of by osmosis, really? The more you learn, just the better experience you have that means you naturally do this. Yeah, that's so interesting, actually. And I think I actually think for a lot of writers, they probably know a lot of this stuff instinctively from having been exposed to story. You know, if they're a big reader, then they're going to pick a lot of this stuff about, for example, story structure up, uh, like you say, by osmosis. And then they're going to have an instinctive gra grasp of how how the shape of a story should work, for example. But um, I, for me, it's quite conscious. So, and I think it's a, I think nowadays it's a bit of both, you know, that people talk about that whole thing when you're learning of like, you start off as unconsciously incompetent, as in you don't even know that you don't know anything. <laughs> and then you become consciously incompetent as you realize that you don't know anything. And then you become consciously competent as in you're doing it and you're having to think about it a lot and be very aware of trying to apply some of this stuff. And then you become unconsciously competent, which is when you start to do it as second nature. But I find it particularly helpful, for example, when I'm editing, if I'm looking at a scene or an, an arc in my novel, and it doesn't feel like it's working in terms of kind of pace or beats, or there's something not quite hitting the mark in that scene very often I can look at my toolbox of kind of techniques and be like oh well it's because for example I haven't you know I haven't got a proper crisis moment and climax moment or my progressive complications aren't working and then I can go back and fix it clearly rather than just muddling around trying to keep changing it but not really understanding what's wrong so not really having a good understanding of how it should be fixed like I'd rather not try and fix things by trial and error I'd rather have a good sort of sense of diagnosing what's wrong with it and then fixing it <laughs> thank you for that by the way is I very rarely get the chance to analyze the way people write because I do this so I guess some people assume that I should know when I really don't so that's fantastic thank you uh, let me just bring you back to your writing room then 
talk to me about the desk. We know that there's inspiration maybe on the walls. What's on your desk? Uh, little bric-a-brac tokens? What are you writing on? That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, my desk is currently quite messy. Um, I'm not actually naturally a very messy person. And with my writing desk, I go through phases. Like when I'm kind of in the middle of a story or in the middle of a novel, often my desk will be quite messy because it feels like everything's still fluid and I'm still working on stuff. And often when I'll reach the end of a project or the end of a particular stage in a project, I'll have a bit of a tidy up and kind of clear the desk. Um, so yeah, I've got, I've got some quite fun things on my desk. So I've got a little mug that I keep a load of colored pens in for scribbling ideas and editing and stuff. And it's that one that other people may have seen that says, go away, I'm writing. And then the writing is crossed out and it says editing as well. So that's, that's quite good. Um, I have a load of index cards because I often use index cards to just um, make a note of different scenes that I'm going to string together in a novel. I've got a little pot plant that's dead <laughs> because I didn't look after it properly. There was a time when it had some nice flowers on it, but it's just died because I was too busy writing and not looking after the plant. <laughs> And it's still there? Yeah, because I'm lazy. <laughs> I haven't bothered to do anything with it. I'm definitely not a gardener. That is not where my talents lie. Um, I've also got a copy on my desk of the book Gone Girl, partly just because it's one of my favourite psychological thrillers. I think it's an absolute masterwork of the genre. And also the novel that I'm writing just now uh, draws a little bit on some of the uh, elements of Gone Girl. It's a, it's a tiny little bit of a homage to Gone Girl as well. So I've got that on my desk. And then the other thing that I've got is a random little thing that I made for myself. Um, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's a little, it's like a little paper model thing that I made to help me when I'm freaking out about my writing. So it's kind of like a hexagonal shape no well what's five-sided pentagonal and um on three sides it's got little drawings of fig like little figures that are like being like happy and joyful and it one of them says explore one of them says play and one of them says discover and then on the other two sides which I normally put facing away from me so I can't see them there's like a horrible figure in black pen called the doubt demon and another one called Fear, um, which are like the things that can strike me when I'm writing. And I have to, I have this little thing on my desk, though I always remember to keep tapped into my creative bit that's about exploring and playing and discovering when I'm writing or editing and to like shut out and ignore my terror about not knowing what the hell am I doing and the doubt demon that says, you're a terrible writer. You are an idiot. Uh, does that work? <laughs> does that work? It, like when you... Yeah, it does actually, because it's like sometimes you can be in that mindset of just all that negativity, right? And if I look at my little thing and I just go, oh, yeah, that's the doubt demon. I don't have to listen to that. I'll just, oh, I know what it is. Whereas sometimes you just see it as the truth, right? You just are in all these negative thoughts and you're just like, yeah, my writing is terrible and I am an awful writer and my career is nosediving into the ground. But then I look at my little thing and I'm like, oh no, that's just the fear and the doubt demon talking. Remember to just explore, play and discover and you'll get there. 
Amazing. I love the, I love like these little tricks that we do because it makes us sound quite silly, doesn't it? Really, because it, it's you telling yourself to not believe your other self. If if you make if that kind of makes sense, it's 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 just amazing that that works. I love it. Uh, very quickly, what are you writing on? As you know from listening, like people get very very into this kind of sure thing. yeah so do i <laughs> so i write on a fairly old um macbook which um i mean i've always written on laptops generally and they're always a bit behind the curve technologically but i kind of i like it i think something that's less slick and all bells and whistles helps me just to focus on what i'm doing which is generally just you know, text on the page and not get distracted by other things. Um, I often use um, Scrivener when I'm doing a first draft. So what I'll generally do is I'll write a scene in Word and then I'll copy that scene into Scrivener and I'll do that until I've got all the scenes copied over to Scrivener that make up a whole first draft. And then I, I I don't use a lot of Scrivener, but I like it for the way that you can reorder scenes far more easily than you can do in Microsoft Word. So I can have a look at everything that I've written and I can move it around to try and get right, the general okay. shape. Well, sorry, can I ask, uh, Was like we're quite close to Scrivener on the show and I think they've sponsored us in the past. What are you, I guess, why are you not writing it into Scrivener straight away? Why write it into Word, then into Scrivener? Well, that's a really good question. Um I think probably because I've never really thought about it. I think, but I think probably because in Word, again, I can, it can be a lot less cluttered. So the Scrivener has, a, again, just the program of Scrivener when you open it on your screen, it's got quite a lot of tabs and bits and pieces all going on. Whereas on Word, what I generally do is put it into focus mode. So you just have, you know, a black screen and a white page and the text. And that's how I like to write. So it's, um, yeah. And also I think there's something about me writing the scene and then transferring it over once it's done somehow rather than, I don't know, isn't that weird? Yeah, like there's like I think I'd, I'd rather not fiddle with it in Scrivener. I'd rather work it out on Word. And then when it's completed, it's like, maybe it's almost like, you know, the old fashioned someone would, sort of type it on the typewriter and then they'd put all that whole stack of pages on one side when they're all done. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's funny. And, and what, what font are you writing with, Philippa? I write in Times New Roman 12-point double-spaced. The classic. I do my job as a clinical psychologist part-time now. I used to work full-time when I worked in the NHS and now I work part-time and that's uh, yeah I've gone into private practice so I'm basically my own boss and I can set my own hours and over time since doing that since leaving the NHS and going private I've, I've basically kind of reduced and reduced and reduced my my time I think I started out doing four days a week and now I basically run a clinic um sort of a day or a day and a half a week and I have about half a day for admin so for me Thursdays and Fridays are generally my psychology days um and also um both both clinically and in terms of admin including some life admin as well um and i don't write on those days i might do some writing related things like i might listen to a podcast or or something like that but i don't 
generally expect myself to do any writing on those two days. But the rest of the days in the week, so Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I would consider days for writing. Um, I sometimes do try and have a day off on Saturdays because otherwise I'm effectively working seven days a week and that's probably not good. Um, so, but, but often if I'm kind of in the flow of a project or if I'm coming up to a deadline, I often will just um, write on each of those remaining five days in the week when I'm not doing psychology work. Um, when I'm, when I'm doing a first draft, I aim to write about 2000 words a day. I write really rough and dirty and I don't edit as I go. So I can usually get about 2000 words down within about two hours. And to be honest, then my brain is pretty fried because it's kind of pure creation at that point when you're writing a first draft, isn't it? That you're having to just think think it all up and get it on the page. So even though it's only two hours work, I usually am pretty wiped after that. I'll probably start about, I don't know, nine in the morning. I'm probably more of a morning writer. And then I might be finished by 11 or something. I'll probably have some lunch and then I probably just have a nap in the afternoon, <laughs> read a book and fall asleep. I'm a big napper. Um, when I'm editing, and depending on how heavy the edits are that I'm doing, I can write for longer stints. So in the recent edits that I've been doing for my third book, um, I've been doing sort of stints of about six hours a day. So I'll probably start at about nine and finish about three o'clock, something like that. Um, and just sort of power through. Um, so yeah, so I suppose I, I don't tend to do really, really, really long stints of writing, but I write pretty much every day that I have spare. So on the days when you are writing and you say you'll start about nine and maybe go to 11 and you manage to get out 2000 words, which is some feat, by the way, uh, how, and I know that you're pretty cream crackered for the rest of the day. How do you feel about not being productive the rest of that day? Are you quite fine with it? Are you quite chilled knowing that you've put in such a stint of work early on? Or do you sometimes feel a bit guilty? Because I know that's a, a feeling that many people have now, that they that they feel guilty that they're not kind of using every minute of the day, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I could certainly look at that and think, oh my God, like what a la <laughs> how lazy and like what an easy job you have, you know? <laughs> and yeah, but... um. I mean, I think, like you say, 2,000 words is a pretty good amount of words to have got on the page. And I just know that if I tried to do more writing at that point, it would be really, really poor quality. I can feel that my kind of well is drained by that point. So, yeah, I'm not going to beat myself up for not doing anything you know, in terms of getting words on the page for the rest of the day, because I've done, I've done the work actually. And in general, in life, I'm a big believer that if you get the work done quickly, why should you feel bad about stopping work? <laughs> like, there's no point me sitting in front of my desk for six hours, you know, and just slowing myself down to write 2000 words, just because I feel like I should be you know, at my desk for six hours. So I'm more like work fast, get it done, go and have a nap. Um, and like I say, I'm usually doing 
other writing related stuff. So I'll often be reading, which obviously is a massive part of, you know, keeping your writing brain nice and fresh. I'll be doing some promo stuff on social media. Um, I might be helping a friend out with their um, manuscript or whatever. Or So yeah, I don't tend to feel guilty about it because yeah, I, I know that I've got a good stint done that morning. Now, how do you know what you're working on that day for those 2000 words? So when you sit there at nine o'clock, is there a, a grand spreadsheet very intricately plotted? Are you a bit more fast and loose? How do you know what, what's happening that day? Yeah, I mean, plotter versus pantser, right? Um, I mean, I try to plot and do outlines, but to be honest, I've learned over the years and with experience that a lot of the time I just have to figure the story out on the page. And in some ways that might be a really inefficient and wasteful way of writing, but I've tried to do it other ways and it just doesn't seem to help. So for example, I've had at least two experiences of writing, say, 3,000 word outlines that I've submitted to my agent and my editor and we've gone through, we've gone back and forth on those outlines and tweaked bits and honed bits. And then we've got to the point where my agent and my editor have been like, yep, great. We like it. Go for it. Go and write the draft. And I've sat down and I've written the draft according to the outline. I've submitted it to my agent or my editor and they've gone, it's not really working, is it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and there's something about the outline, can, the outlines that I put together can work fine on paper, but they just haven't produced a story that's working. So I tend to just have to kind of do multiple, multiple, multiple drafts where I'm often doing page one rewrites and digging down into the story and I think in some ways that's why I write my first draft so quickly and, and roughly because I just know that they're going to be rewritten so many times. There's no point me fooling around with them. So, I mean, I think what I generally do is I, going back to what we were talking about before, I have a fairly good sense of story structure. So I know particular kind of plot points that I'm working towards and I'll generally have a sense of the scenes that I'm stringing together to get to the next plot point and again coming back to the index cards I'll often have a series of scenes that I know I'm going to cover so each day I can get up and I'll know the next scene or you know half a dozen scenes that I'll be working through again a lot of those will end up binned or changed or whatever but it's like I just have to tell the whole story before I can even see if this is the right story or if there's major things that are just not working in it. So, yeah, takes it's a, pretty, it's a bit of a soul-destroying way of writing sometimes, but it seems to be the only way that I could do it. <laughs> and I've just resigned myself to that now. And then, and, then, <laughs> and then when you get to the editing, you said that you, you spend a lot longer editing, sometimes like six hours of a day. Uh, this might be a really really stupid question how, how does that work do you just sit there and take it a line at a time just reading and then changing and reading and yeah, changing uh i mean i suppose it yeah it kind of varies depending on the type of editing that i'm doing so when i for example when i get structural edits back from my editor normally what i'll need to do is 
first of all, curl up in a ball and cry for like a while because this it's like always like, oh God, like I've just got so much more work to do and there's so much that's not working. And I thought that I was nearly there and had it got it fundamentally right, but I clearly haven't. Wah! Um and, and then I'll normally I'll normally take about a week of just reading through those pages of notes and making my own notes on the notes to pull together my vision. I, that sounds like a quite a pretentious word, but just my my yeah my vision for how I'm going to rework it all. So obviously in the editorial letter, my editor's often raising lots of questions about. Um, well, obviously things like character motivation or replacing one plot strand with something else. And, and again, it's kind of being back in that creative process of having to regenerate a whole bunch of new ideas that are going to fix all those problems. And they're generally quite big scale. So I'll normally have about a week of just figuring out my fresh ideas for how I'm going to rework the whole thing. I suppose sometimes it feels like a lot longer than a week usually, actually, because it feels like there's just so much to to rethink. But I think probably it's about a week that it will take me. Um, and then, yeah, then I might formalize that a little bit more. I might make myself a really rough kind of outline of what I'm going to change. Um, Outlines at that point tend to work a bit better because at least it's kind of more of an updating outline rather than a just the book doesn't even exist yet outline. And then, yeah, I then, God, how do, God, it's like, I don't know, it's like I get amnesia for this bit, actually, because I don't know, maybe it's like childbirth. I don't have kids, but, you know, people who have had kids, they sort of say like, oh, I didn't even remember it, like how awful it was. <laughs> I did it again. It's like, I can't even remember quite how I do it. But I think, I mean, maybe I'll go back to, I mean, I'll probably just go through, first of all, and just delete a load of stuff that I know isn't, like I'll just delete a bunch of scenes that aren't, I know that aren't going to be in there. I'll probably then go through and just move a bunch of scenes around that I know need to be done. And then I'll probably, yeah, start at the beginning and just go through and just rework or or rewrite each scene that needs to be done as it goes along. Um, and again, sometimes I can only do so much of that in one day if I'm creating scenes completely from scratch. I can't do that for six hours. It's more fine tuning editing that I can do for a longer stint. Um, but yeah, I think, and I, and I often call that phase when I'm really just trying to rework the whole thing so fundamentally I call it my tunneling through mud stage because it's like I really can't see properly what I'm even doing or how I'm going to get there and it just feels like I'm I can like see like one inch in front of my face and it's like it's the worst part for me I just feel like the whole thing is a mess it's never going to come together I don't know where I'm going or what I'm really doing and I just have to keep like scratching and digging away at it and eventually it's like I get this whole tunnel that comes and it's like there's a whole through line how long is that eventually when do you how long are you sitting there slogging away uh, and what are the first moments that you start to realize oh okay maybe this is where we are going through the mud um so I th I think that would probably be a two or three month process I think so I usually write my first crappy drafts 
in about two months. So 2,000 words a day, five days a week is 10,000 words a week. And I usually aim for about 80,000 words. So that's, that's eight weeks, two months. But then that first round of structural edits will probably be two or three months. And it's probably about three weeks, three or four weeks into that, when I'm still probably editing the first quarter that I'll be in that tunneling through mud phase, I'll just be like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And the, like, I've, I've edited like five chapters and I know that the whole rest of the book is just a mess. <laughs> and then probably after about six to eight weeks, I might start to feel like there's a kind of through line starting to take shape. So, yeah. Um, but I know that even after those two, three months of structural edits, I know there'll still be loads of edits after that. So, But at least I start to feel like something is coming together. And then I, I guess at the very end of that, if you're doing all these edits and it is quite a slog at times, how easy for you is it to finally say, this is done? I'm not, I don't need to touch this anymore. It can go out and, and be published. Um, well... Uh, well, I think that I I think that after my structural edits, like I say, I always know that there's going to be a bunch more rounds of edits with my editor. So it wouldn't be unusual, like for the book that I'm doing now, I'm on my second round of structural edits. So we did a first round of structural edits where we completely changed the plot. And I did all of that and resubmitted it. And then my editor was like, hmm, yeah, still not really working. So I did whole I'm just doing a whole another round of structural edits and completely changing the plot again <laughs> and I know that after this round of edits there'll still be um quite a lot of line editing to do in terms of really making sure that everything is really clear in terms of all the new information and the new you know plot line that I've got so that will be a whole other round of edits to really bring everything into really clear focus and then I know that there'll be a round of copy edits and then I know that there'll be a round of proofreading so I think at each stage I I tend to only take it so far because I know that there's going to be more edits and I just try to get it far enough along that it's really clear what I've done and what it's supposed to look like even if there's a few little fudgy bits that will still need to be ironed out because there's no point me sitting on it and trying to make the whole thing perfect if my editor's going to come back and say, well, this bit kind of needs to be changed anyway. And then I think I get to the point where, you know, once it's past the kind of copy editor, it's pretty much done. You know, there's not really a lot that's going to be changed at that point. And of course, there's still going to be things that could be improved, but you're never going to get there. So I always kind of think, well, is it, if it's 97% good enough, that's good enough because you're never going to get 100%. There's always going to be a sentence that could be better or something that's not perfectly, perfectly paced or, you know, whatever. But you can drive yourself nuts over that, can't you, going around in circles? And on those days when you are writing and maybe it's not working and you, you are struggling to get those 2,000 words, um, any tricks, anything that you've learned along the way that helps you out? Maybe a bit of music, a cup of coffee, switching things up. How does that work? Um, tea, definitely tea. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, I I go walking a lot. I've, you know, I live in the countryside and there's lots of nice routes to walk on. And I definitely find that that helps 
sugar ideas out of my brain or help me figure something out that I'm stuck with. Um, sometimes just stepping back and taking a break from it, because I think sometimes I can be trying so hard to generate an idea that it's just making me, t- everything's tensing up or my creativity is tensing up and sometimes just banning myself from thinking about it or writing will actually allow the keen creative bit of my brain to still be sort of playing in the background rather than me trying to force it and trying to be really um, slave drivery about it. Um, I often write with music on in the background really just to help me focus. So I used to just listen to kind of generic classical music. I now have um, like some relaxation concentration music that I found on YouTube that is, again, very generic, but just helps me uh, to concentrate. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We'll be back with more from Philippa in just a sec. Very quickly popping up to remind you that if you're enjoying the show, uh, you can always support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just for becoming a backer for a few dollars a month, you can get bonus content. There is a way for your book to sponsor this show. You get our merch. You get our unending thanks for for helping us carry on, for helping us to continue to bring you episodes with the best authors around as frequently as possible. If you've learned anything along the way that has helped and changed the way that you write, the way that you tell your stories, you can say thanks for that. You can help us out by becoming a backer and pledging to support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Philippa East talking about her new novel, Safe and Sound. It tells the story of the pretty, the charming, the charismatic and outgoing Sarah Jones, who was found in her bedsit after being dead for 10 months. 
Now, we talk about how much she knew about the story before she sat down to write and why it turns out a lot, but it didn't really mean anything because outlines don't always work. We also talk about character names, and I think I ask one of the most ridiculously straightforward questions I've ever asked in over 200 episodes of this show. And we pick things up chatting about the inspiration for the story, how it came from a documentary that she saw, and then how she made it her own. Rather tragically, this is actually based on a true story. Uh, well, not it's inspired by a true story. It's, I mean, it's very different from the reality. But um, I saw a docudrama made by the filmmaker Carol Morley um, called Dreams of a Life. And it was a, a docudrama based on, as I say, this real life case of a woman called Joyce Vincent, who was found in her bedsit in North London in oh gosh, I think it was, oh, was it 2006, I think? And her body had been there since 2003. And again, she was a woman in her 30s. She was um, a professional. Um, she was known to be very gregarious and and all of these things. And um, it was just this complete, sort of tragedy and mystery of what had happened and the filmmaker Carol Morley set out to make a documentary and she con- she managed to track down and contact a bunch of the friends who had known this woman and she the the filmmaker had put adverts in newspapers and on the side of taxis and things basically saying you know did, did you know this woman please get in touch and when she finally spoke to some of these friends they heard this story in the papers about a woman called Joyce Vincent who had died alone in her flat and they simply had not connected it with the Joyce Vincent that they knew and when this filmmaker pitched up and told them it was the same person they were they couldn't believe it because it was you know they didn't understand how their friend had ended up like that and i highly recommend the docudrama it's called dreams of a life um you know, if you, I think it was on film four again recently, but it's incredibly moving. And I think I watched it in probably around 2013, something like that. And I just never got the story out of my head. And when my agent and I were discussing possible ideas for a second book for me to write um, after my debut, Little White Lies, I mentioned this idea I'd had and she really liked the sound of it. And yeah, so we went from there, basically. What happens next? So you've seen this docudrama and then also you need to you need to make this fiction. You need to make this your own. So what are you doing before you're starting to write to detach it from this fantastic uh, movie that you've seen, this fantastic documentary? So this is not that. This is your own novel about your own character. Yeah, well, this was where I hit a real problem. <laughs> so basically my agent, so the backstory to the whole, you know, genesis of this book is I had, we were going out on submission with Little White Lies, um, which was, as I say, was my debut. And when we were about to go out on submission, my agent said it would be really great if we have a a, a pitch for a second book so that we can submit with a view to getting a two book deal. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And I sent her this pitch for for an idea that I'd had. And I'd also, I'd got a kind of whole outline sketched out and I'd written a first chapter and I'd also written a kind of pitchy blurb. And the pitchy blurb and the first chapter had been shortlisted for 
um, the Jericho Writers um, competitions for their Pitch Perfect competition and their opening chapter competitions. I was like, I am so on a winner here. I've got the best idea. It's it's so great. Anyway, I sent this to my agent and she was like, oh, I just don't think it fits well enough with the genre of Little White Lies. And so we went back and forth a little bit and I tried to sort of tweak the pitch and make it a little bit more sort of similar in style and tone to Little White Lies, but it basically wasn't working. And then, yeah, my agent, Sarah Hornsley, said, do you have another idea? And that's when I told her about this idea of, um, you know, uh, a young woman dying and not being found for a really long time. And so she said, that's great. Write a pitch for Monday. This was like on the Thursday or something. <laughs> so like over the weekend, I wrote this like one paragraph pitch, which is pretty much what you see on the on the back of Safe and Sound now that you've just read out. Sent it to my agent and we submitted that along with the manuscript for uh, Little White Lies. And lo and behold, I got a two book deal, which was fantastic. But then when I had to sit down and write Safe and Sound, you know, like the question at the end of the blurb, which is like, how is her, how is Sarah Jones's death gone undiscovered for 10 whole months? I was like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So I spent probably about, oh God, like, yeah, like three months trying to answer my own question. And it was awful because I just literally didn't know. And I wrote three completely different outlines, completely different outlines, completely different characters, completely different setting, completely different plot. And I just, I just had no idea. So it just, yeah, it took me a really, really, really long time to come up with my own story and my own um, protagonist. And yeah, so basically, I was like, I've totally messed up here. Because <laughs> writing a pitch is one thing, isn't it? You can put a great hook question in, but then you're like, I don't even know the answer. <laughs> and I wrote an entire outline, went back and forward with it with my agent on this occasion. And she was like, yeah, sounds great. Go for it. And so then I wrote the whole book according to that outline, and it didn't work. So, so I thought I knew everything about the book, but I didn't. Um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, looking back, a lot of the elements were still the same. But um, yeah, I because in Safe and Sound, there's basically two timelines. One is um, a present timeline from the perspective of the protagonist, who is um, the housing manager called Jen, who is responsible for the bedsit that Sarah Jones dies in. So Jen takes it upon herself to, she feels really guilty because it's kind of on her watch and she takes it upon herself to investigate. So again, a lot of the elements were sort of the same, but I but I had to work, rework a lot. And particularly what changed was the other timeline, which is started out with a character who uh, is kind of still in the book, but it's completely different. And then those um, what they're called is back then um, sections in Safe and Sound, which uh, there was a completely new character. And those bits actually really came really easily. It was really strange once I kind of cottoned on to what I was going to do. And this was through actually some phone calls with my agent, which was absolutely invaluable that we just brainstormed it together. And um, yeah, and then I went away and did, did a complete rewrite. 
<laughs> which was not really similar to the outline that I had submitted. So this is again when I'm learning that outlines don't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, Jen, who is, uh, you said that she kind of runs the bedsit, right? This character, Jen. Yeah, so she works for the um, housing association that the, you know, is is lets this bed sit out. And it's one of the properties which is on Jen's caseload, basically. Is there a reason why her name is spelt with two N's? <laughs> no. <laughs> I thought that's how you, I don't know, it's short for Jennifer. And that's just how I spelt it. I suppose it's... Well, okay. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Well, no, which is fine. And this, please, I, I'm I'm a... Whenever I've written Jen, I've written it with one N. That's so, funny. like, and this, this is fine. But I was just, I was, I, I wondered if there was a reason. I wondered if you'd sat there and thought, oh, maybe this might signify dot, 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 that she's a bit alternative, a bit unique. But it's just, you spell it like that. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Oh, my God. Talking of spelling of um, characters' names. So, in the book that I'm writing at the moment, I've got a character called um, Selena, spelt C E L I N A. And then in the next book that's sort of in the sort of rough planning stage, I've got a character whose name is spelled S-E-L-E-N-A. And I was looking at it, I'm like, <laughs> they're both called Selena. I've just spelled them differently. Like, what's wrong with me? I clearly just don't have a good grasp of how to spell names. <laughs> <basically>. <laughs> well, that's, that's fine. But uh, what's interesting as well, if we're talking about names quickly, so... Um, your character in Safe and Sound, who is found curled up on the sofa, has been dead for, for some time, is uh, Sarah Jones, which is that's quite a standard, normal name, uh, almost like forgettable, you might say. Why, why did you land on that? Was, is that the reason? Yeah, I think that definitely was part of it, actually. This idea that, um, um, I mean, in, in the very original version, she was called Sophie Starling, which is sort of quite an intriguing name. But yeah, I think as I went on with the novel, I think I wanted this idea that it was an, because there's a lot of, it, not to give any spoilers, but as part of the twist of the novel, there's a sense of kind of, again, inspired by this real life case that people didn't realise that they knew her. So if you if you heard a news story about someone called Sarah Jones, where something pretty awful seemed to have happened, and you know someone called Sarah Jones that you think that would never happen to, you're going to assume, well, Sarah Jones is a really common name. What you know, why would I assume it's mine? And yeah, I think the idea that it's a sort of forgettable name, um, yeah, you know, just this this sense of how easy it was for her to be overlooked as well, because her name was so generic and people didn't realise that Sarah Jones is my Sarah Jones. Now, you work as a clinical psychologist and you're writing psychological thrillers. How much does your work in psychology affect what you write? How do you separate work from fiction like that? Um, I basically see them as two sides of the same coin. So I think that my, my initial draw to studying psychology as an undergraduate was I wanted to understand humans, including myself. Um, and I think that my draw to writing is very similar. I'm, I mean, when we write, we write about people generally, you know, it's, it's hard to have a, a novel or a fiction piece that doesn't involve some characters. Um, and I think that I'm writing 
and telling stories again as a way to try and understand people. And then I think taking that slightly more specifically, I think that I went into clinical psychology specifically, which is basically the psychology of mental health and mental illness, because I was interested in how the human brain and how the human mind breaks down, how it goes wrong, the difficult or distressing or disturbing parts of the human experience. And again, I think in my writing, psychological thrillers really explore the dark or disturbed or difficult sides of human nature and human experience. So, yeah, I see them as two sides of the same coin, that they they both inform each other. Like I certainly draw on my knowledge of human psychology to write my character's in a way that I hope is plausible or how they react to the things that they experience. And obviously I know about things like um, how anxiety affects people. So for example, Jen, the housing manager in Safe and Sound struggles with really a really severe form of anxiety. Um, In my first book, Little White Lies, that's really a lot to do with the family coping with uh, the trauma of, of their young daughter, um, vanishing and being abducted and then returning home. And that's all about family trauma and family dynamics and family adjustment. So I definitely draw on my psychological knowledge. But the more I've learned about story and narrative as well, it really amazes me how um, stories are, so many stories are about characters going through a big change and facing their demons and overcoming their flaws and Um, having to fight their own demons to triumph in the end. And I see so much of the same pattern in people going through therapy, that something has happened in their life that has thrown the status quo completely out of kilter. And they're having to go on a journey to overcome that and, you know, overcome obstacles or, or things that they need to change within themselves to eventually triumph and, and come out a you know healed person at the end of it. And I just I think it's fascinating how I think that's why we have story in cultures generally. It's it's a form of figuring out how we navigate the world, basically. And I, and I see that in people's journeys in therapy and I see that in the hero's journey in story. Thank you very much to Philippa East for coming on the show. Her new book, Safe and Sound, is out right now. Pick it up, grab a copy, see the story of Sarah Jones and why she was found uh, in that bedsit after 10 months with no one knowing what she was up to. Uh, Now, next week, we're chatting to Denmark's queen of crime, Sarah Bladel. Uh, Pretty much half the Danish population own one of her books. And her newest one is A Harmless Lie. And she'll be on next week to tell us more. In the meantime, you can support the show pledge and become a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can get in touch at writersroutine.com and give us a follow on Twitter. We're at writers pod there. And I will see you next week with Sarah Bladel, the queen of crime on the show. Until then, bye. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.